If you've been waiting, you can't make your mind up about buying the 10 DVD set Old Time Radio, now's the time. They'll be discontinued as of December 31st. Go to the oldtimeradiodvd.com today and place your order. Prices will never be any lower for this great set of Old Time Radio. Oldtimeradiodvd.com to the clubhouse and now open so come on in you're just in time for the meeting go ahead grab a coffee and have a seat the meeting is just about to come to order here's your host dick all day welcome to the old time radio club show brought to you courtesy of yesterday usa I'm your host, Dick Golday, and joining me are the two Franks. It's a bargain rate, two Franks for the price of one. Yeah. <laughs> On today's show, we will be presenting NBC University Theater and an early episode of Sergeant Preston that was presented as a 15-minute show on the Michigan Radio Network in the early 1940s. The Old Time Radio Club was established way back in 1975, and we have members throughout the U.S. and Canada. For further information on our club, you can email me at raolday at yahoo.com. Or you can email me at frankboncore, B-O-N-C-O-R-E, at hotmail.com. Okay, Frank, for jumping on my line there. <laughs> you got to be quick, Dick. you got to be hey, quick. good at that. Okay, thanks, Frank. Now it's time for NBC University Theater, and today's show is... After Many a Summer Dies the Swan, originally aired on April 16, 1950. New Theater, a series of hour-length dramas based on some of the most significant writings of our time, with an introduction and commentary by one of the great personalities of the American theater, the distinguished actress, director, and producer, Eva Legallion. Miss Legallion. Good evening once again, and good afternoon to our friends in the West. Last Sunday, I announced that our play today would be based on Whistle Stop, the novel by Marietta Wolfe. Unfortunately, due to last-minute difficulties, we've had to change our program. And instead, we're bringing you a transcribed dramatization of a book by one of the most brilliant of modern English writers, Aldous Huxley. After Many a Summer Dies the Swan is the curious title. Huxley wrote it in 1939. It's a devastating and bitter satire in spots excruciatingly funny. There's also something decidedly macabre about it. Many of you may not agree with it at all, but I'm pretty sure that you'll all be interested in it. Huxley never fails to be stimulating and provocative, even when one disagrees with him most violently. The setting of this strange intellectual excursion is California, and our performance today actually takes place there. For while I am speaking to you from New York, the players of our company are in Hollywood. I invite them now to begin their performance of Aldous Huxley's After Many a Summer Dies the Swan. 
when the train pulled into Los Angeles station. Not that I'm overly fond of Wordsworth. My instructions were to search for a tall chauffeur in a grey uniform, and I presume his were to track down a middle-aged Englishman carrying the poetical works of William Wordsworth. Mr. Potted, sir, welcome to Los Angeles. Oh, Mr. Stoke chauffeur? That's right, sir. I'd have known you by your voice even without that book. Yes, my voice. <laughs> wait, wait, why is it that in America I have only to ask for a cup of coffee to draw gales of laughter? <laughs> it's quite provoking. Uh, I beg your pardon, sir. Oh, never mind, never mind. If you will collect my box at the window, we'll be off. <laughs> Mr. Stroit's motor car rolled exceedingly smoothly, and I abandoned myself to the pleasure of looking. Southern California rolled past the window. We were traveling westward. The sunshine lit up each building and sky sign as though with a spotlight. The billboards were most emphatic. Do things go places with console gas. That's one of ours, Mr. Porter. Uh, 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 what's that? Uh, console gas. That's Mr. Stoich's company. He's president. Uh, Welcome, uh, Romance. Science proves that 73% of all adults have halitosis. Beverly Pantheon, a cemetery that is different. Funerals are not expensive. That's ours, too. Oh, you, you mean the Beverly Pantheon? Finest cemetery in the world, I guess. We could stop by if you'd like to see us. Oh, look. Over there to the right. Beverly Pantheon? No, that's where Ginger Rogers lives. Oh, Yes, sir, Ginger Rogers. Pantheon's down the road, sir. You two can have abiding use with drill form figure control. That's uh, Groucho Marx's place over there. Ah, here we are, the Beverly Pantheon. Beverly Pantheon, the Personality Cemetery. Oh, that's the Tower of Pisa, isn't it? Except that he doesn't lean. The showplace of the Beverly Pantheon. Mr. Stoyd had it straight and special. Two hundred thousand dollars, that's what it costs. Yes, sir. We went through a whirlwind tour of the Beverly Pantheon. Everything. The pet cemetery, the poet's corner, the black marble vestibule of ashes, leading to the supermodern burning mortuary furnace. And finally, the Pantheon itself. And overall, the inescapable crooning of a perpetual worry for automatic organ. This new heaven of the Beverly Pantheon seemed to promise all the more conventional delights. With the added joys of everlasting tennis, eternal golf, and millennial swimming. The Pantheon, eh, Mr. Porter? Uh, yeah, oh, yes, 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 definitely. Uh, um, out of this world, what? Now, look up there. Between those hills, there it is. That's Mr. Stoich's place. On the summit of the bluff, as though growing out of the rock to the castle. The thing was gothic, medieval. Medieval, not out of vulgar historical necessity like the castles of France and Germany, but out of pure fun and wantonness. Platonically, one might say. It was medieval as only a witty and irresponsible modern architect and engineer is equipped to be. Want a ride, Mr. Proctor? Oh, hello, George. Nice of you to stop for me. Always glad to, Mr. Proctor. Uh, this here's Mr. Portage from England. I'm sure he won't mind. Oh, not at all, Mr. Pleased to meet you, sir. How do you do? 
Uh, visiting Mr. Storch, Mr. Portage? I am here on business. Uh, I'm to catalog the Hoback papers. Mr. Storch just bought them. A historical treasure, you know. Hmm. You're a scholar? <laughs> well, well, a bit, yes. A scholar and a gentleman. Well, there are worse types of human beings. I might almost claim to have been one myself long ago. You're, you're not William Proctor, are you? Not the one who wrote short studies in the Counter-Reformation? <laughs> I'm jiggered. <laughs> <laughs> Remarkable building, the castle, isn't it? Ah, poor Joe Stoyd. Think of having that millstone round one's neck. Well, I shouldn't exactly think it is a millstone. No, neither does Joe, but it is. Uh, perhaps it might help you if you knew about Joe. You know, we were at school together, he and I. Only nobody called him Joe in those days. <laughs> we uh, we called him Slob or Jelly Belly. <laughs> yeah, you see, Joe was a fat boy, and how we punished him for his glandular deficiencies. You might remember that fat boy when you meet the man. Help you to understand. Well, here I am at home. Uh, George, I'll get off here. Okay, Mr. Proctor. Have a good time, Mr. Boyd. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Mr. Portage, pleased to meet you. My name's Toit. Joe Stoy. Oh, I, uh... You're older than I thought. <laughs> the Sierra and with that leaf, you know, one thinking... Uh, about... What's your age? Fifty-four. Only fifty-four? <laughs> Ought to be full of pep at fifty-four. How do you do with the lady? <laughs> well, the more book I'm showing what it is. Uh, what's that? No use talking foreign languages to me. <laughs> I'm head of an oil company. Got 2,000 stations in California alone. And not one man in any of those filling stations... That isn't a college graduate. <laughs> Go and talk foreign languages to them. Yes, you're to do those old papers, aren't you? What the devil is the name of them? Roebuck, Hoback. Just bought them this summer. Uh, the Hoback paper. Hoback, that's right. Yeah. Uh, what were you saying about women when you started that foreign stuff one day? <laughs> well, uh, well uh, what was implying it was uh, normal for one day? What do you know about what's normal at your age? Go talk to Dr. Obispo about that. Doctor, uh, it won't cost anything. He's on salary. He's a house physician. Knows everything about long life. Want to see the castle? I'll, uh, I'll take you around. Oh, that's very kind of you. Uh, I've already seen your, your burial ground. What? What's that? My burial ground? What the devil do you mean? Oh, right, right, right. Well, you, I understood. Right. Uh, that is uh, that you own the Beverly Pantheon. Oh, oh. That. Well, don't say that again. Not more martyrs, you know. Can't get excited, Obispo, one Come on. It, uh, it is a large castle, isn't it? Uh, Twenty stories. We'll go down to the hospital now. Stoyt Hospital for children. They call me Uncle Joe. Well, they do. Poor uh, kid. Makes me feel kind of like to cry. By the way, Mr. Uh, Mr. Portage, uh, you've got a religion. But... Hmm, more or less, yes. Uh, the late Mrs. Stoyt was very religious. Taught me a slogan. God is love. There is no death. Good one, eh? There is no death. Well, I think it there used to be a text over my bed when I was kid. Orange letters on a black cardboard. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Different, isn't it? Now, what the devil made me bring that? Oh, never mind. The Blazers will a hospital. We'll go up to the roof. Got a pool up there. We'll have a swim before dinner, huh? <laughs> The view from the swimming pool was remarkable. 
One had only to turn one's head to see successive vistas of plain and mountain, green, tawny, and faint blue. If one turned the other way, one saw Miss Virginia Monstable poised on the diving board. Miss Monstable was, uh, well, uh, the chauffeur informed me that she was a particular friend of Mr. Stoit. And in his friend, Mr. Stoit was particular, for she was, well, uh, she was excessively beautiful. There was not much fading dress to conceal it. There, Uncle Joe. You're feeling kind of good. Oh, feeling fine, baby. Oh, doesn't the sun feel good? Skinny baby, I'd like to eat you. I'm tough. <laughs> well, a little tough, kid. What did you bring old Baldy here for, Uncle Joe? Oh, to catalog some old papers I bought in England. Looks funny, doesn't it? around that pool like an yeah, old Buddha. Yeah. I'm going to dive in and duck him. Oh, don't go away, baby. I did some business this morning. I'd make a lot of money, real money. How much? Maybe half a million, maybe a million, maybe even more. Uncle Joe, I think you're wonderful. Ah, it's easy, baby, easy. Easy, nothing. I say you're wonderful. So just keep your own mouth shut. Oh, stop it. You're tickling me. Stop it. Oh, my wonderful Are you present if the deal goes through? What do you like, baby? I don't know. I never really want things bad. I don't think I want anything. Ah, oh, that's what I like about you, baby. No, I don't want anything. Don't you, Virginia? Well, I do. Don't be Don't pussyfoot up like that. I don't like to be startled. I don't like it at all. Not at all. Mr. Stoyd, I don't advise you working up a temper. Anger is a poison, my friend, and not a slow one. But if you want to shorten your life instead of lengthening... All right, all right, uh, what do you want, Doctor? To be precise, I want to inject 1.5 cubic centimeters of this stuff into the great man's gluteus major. Uh, so, off with you, Virginia. Sig, you're on all... Up along, Angel. You think you're Tyrone Power or something, don't you? You're ready for the injection, Mr. Stewart. No, Bispo. I don't like the way you cough. No, I don't suppose you do. It makes your blood boil, but when your blood boils, your blood pressure goes up and... Well, you just can't afford to be angry with me. Oh, Mr. Well, I... I, I put you on your feet after the last stroke, Mr. Stoyd. Without me, perhaps next week, the week after, within the year... I don't talk like that. I don't like it. But if I continue my research, perhaps ten years more for you, or twenty, or thirty, or even... Well, there's no guessing about that. You think there's a chance, oh, Mr. Stoyd? You really think that... That, my friend and benefactor, time will tell. Read enough injection. Roll over. Oh, be careful with that, Tompkins. Those papers are valuable. They sure got them crated up, solid. Got them now. Uh, beautiful, aren't they? Hundreds of years. Hoberg after Hoberg. Knights, Baron's Earl. Records, letters, papers never catalogued. Oh, look here. Look here. Uh, 1576. Yeah, sure. Uh, look, Mr. Porridge, I- I'll be going. I'm sure. Uh, look here, something. A copy of the Marquis de Sade. Oh, I've never even seen one of my mind. My, what an imagination. Oh, Mr. Kitty,
And let's hope most of the last. Oh, yes, uh, I saw you at the pool. There's quite a speck of words you've got here. Hmm? A string of words called religion, another string of words called philosophy, half a dozen other strings called ideals. You know, I don't know how you liberal artists stand it. Don't you find some sense once in a while? Oh, it's a great deal of fun, you know. Uh, just scrabbling about in the dust heap. <laughs> Must worry about the meaning. <laughs> Frank, anyway. Most of the PhD boys are blasted snobs trying to pull that high moral culture on you. You know, uh, wisdom rather than knowledge. Mm. At least you admit you're in your racket just for fun. That's what I'm in mind for. So, mind you, I'm not entirely blind to the charms of your racket. Hey, is this book the market is Well, I rather repair it. Well, well, it is. It's, it's, it's quite a man, you know. Mind if I borrow this? I've got a particular use for a book like this. Oh, but I see. I, I really yes, don't thank you very much. Uh, come on down to the hall, see my laboratory. Well, you know, really, I should. I mean, these papers. They've waited right. 500 years. Come on, come on. Well, I, uh, I suppose. Uh, uh, Longevity is my racket, you know. I wouldn't be able to follow it if I were in practice. Devil of a nuisance looking after patients. That's why I fasten on your side. Oh, he's concerned with longevity? Concerned? <laughs> You'll go scared, silly. <laughs> the panic with him, fear of death, you know. And uh, I've been living on that panic for five years. Oh, really? It's research is paradise. I have everything I need with old Joe thrown in as a guinea pig. Oh, cooperative? <laughs> he's ready to submit to anything. Provided it gives them some hope of staying above the ground a few years longer. Oh? You know, it's an interesting thing, old age. Why should dogs be senile at 14 and parrots alive and kicking at 100? Or a fish live to 200 without signs of senility? While poor Joe's toy... Oh, here we are. That's our mice. We've got nearly a thousand of them. Hello, Doc. Oh, my assistant, Pete Boone. Pete, this is Mr. Portage. Glad to meet you, sir. Oh, yes, sir. Uh, Pleased to meet you. Pete is a bright boy. Knows his physiology. Good with his hands, too. Uh, here, look at these nice Portage. Lively, aren't they? They're lively enough while their fakes last. They're shut full of what I poured into old Joe this morning. Not that the old devil needs it. It's young Virginia. Right? <laughs> I'll go get the diet sheet now. Well, put my foot in it again. I beg your pardon? <laughs> Poor old Pete. Fantastically in love. Thinks our Miss Monsipal's like something in the works of Tennyson, uh, you know, chemically pure. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it makes him happy, I won't spoil. Oh, uh, speaking of Uncle Joe, take a look at this. Fish, my Joe. Yes, and what fish? Joe had them stolen from an estate in Europe. They've got rings in their tails dated 1761. 1761? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's the beginning of my favorite period. Those carp are nearly 200 years old. Perfect health. And there's no reason why they shouldn't live another three centuries. It's incredible. There's something about the flora and the intestinal tract of those fish. Something that kills the poisons that produce senility. It's, it's something that... <laughs> rather a fountain of you. That's all right, my friend. Go ahead, laugh, laugh. But we're working on the operation that will transfer that something from the carp to... Well, now we're working on mice. Mice? After that large animal. And if it works all right on dogs and baboons... It ought to work on Uncle Joe. We had dinner in the small dining room. It was the sort of place you think of when you hear the word cafe, with original Fra Angelico murals on the walls, for a spiritual touch. Mr. Stoyt was with us and Miss Monsipal. 
Dr. Obispo spent the hour telling stories to the lady while young Pete gazed at her with a, a rapt, pre-rationalite expression. After luncheon, Virginia, Pete, and the doctor went off to feed the baboons. Here now, Virginia, throw the potatoes to them. Oh, aren't they cute? Absolutely divine. Well, divine is an adjective I hadn't thought of applying to baboons. But, uh, here, throw the rest of the food. That old fellow's looking seedy, Doc. He won't even come eat. He's hungry, all right. He's just afraid to leave his lady friend. Here, Angel, throw this potato in front of him. Okay. There. He's taking notice now. <laughs> but so's the young chap on the rocks. Look at him. He's just waiting till the old boy gets away so I can dash for the lady. Come on, funny face. Go get the carrot. Here. <laughs> and there goes young Lancelot sweeping down on the lady. That's young love for you. <laughs> Aren't they cute? Ooh, the old one's too busy eating to notice it. Aren't they cute? Aren't they human? Mr. Popper would say it the other way around. I'd we baboon-like. Oh, that's silly. I don't know. He's pretty smart. Say, uh, as long as we're half down the hill, why not go see him? Get Portage to go with you. Oh, Poppy scares me stiff. Besides, I think I've got a headache. Sig, couldn't you give me something for it? Men son on corpus, no? Well, does it taste bad? I don't like nasty medicine. <laughs> no, 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 it's a Latin. Sound mind and sound body. <laughs> the mind has just been demonstrated and the body is evident. You talk too much, Sig. Yes, yes, I know, dear. But only a trifle of it filters down into that pretty head. And if you're not going with Pete, come back to the castle. I'll read you an old book I borrowed from our English friend. Who's interested in an old book? <laughs> Don't worry, darling. You will be in this one. Well, Mr. Portage, did you meet the ogre of the castle? I remembered about, uh, uh, Jelly Belly. That made it easier, Mr. Proctor. Ah, poor Joe. I remember even at school, he was the kind of fat boy who bluffs it out. Fights back. Buys popularity by treating the girls to ice cream when he has to steal a dime from his grandmother's purse to do it. Believes it when they say he'll go to hell. Poor Joe. Ah, but that's life. And, uh, speaking of life, Pete, how's the work going? Oh, it's going just fine. Mm -hmm. If you succeed, what happens? Why... Life is prolonged. Yes, I know that, but I, I meant something else. Uh, a dog, for example, isn't that supposed to be a wolf that uh, hasn't fully developed? A sort of uh, unborn wolf? Isn't that so? Mm -hmm. There's a theory like that. In other words, it's a tame animal because it doesn't have time to grow up to savagery. Isn't that supposed to be one of the mechanisms of evolutionary development? Yes, that's right. But what will happen with man? What would he grow into if you lengthened his life? You know, Pete, time and craving, that's our life. Now, what are you offering us? Another 200 years of time and craving? Time is the proper for more good. Mm, time doesn't guarantee good, my boy. But you can fight for good, Mr. Proper. We fought for good when I was in Spain. And you'll find, Pete, that evil comes even out of those fights for good. <clears throat> but, uh, well, what do you expect people to do when we're attacked by fascists? Sit down and let their throats be cut? No, no, I expect them to fight. People generally do, and the results are generally disastrous. I should like him to try something more effective someday. Yeah, but that's cynicism. Defeatism, it's... Hey there, Doctor! Oh, here comes the Lord of Stoic Castle. What is it, Joe? Why the devil can't you leave my man alone? Hmm? Which man, Joe? My estate manager. Interfering with him in his work. 
You've been bothering him about those blasted farm hands again. What do you think you're doing? What's the idea? The idea? It's an old one, Joe. Your manager's treating those harvest hands like vermin, not like men and women. They haven't enough to eat. You're trying to make reds out of them. You're a lousy agitator. I uh, thought we were talking about eating. You're stalling. Eating and working, wasn't that it? I put up with you for years, Bill, for old time's sake. But you're making the place dangerous for decent people to live in. I'll have you run out of the valley. I see that you're... You're... I see that you're... I'll... Uh, uh, somebody get me a chair. <laughs> you want it? No. Uh, thanks. Thanks. Uh, I mustn't get angry. Obispo said so. A uh, terrible thing. Terrible to fall into the hands of a living God. Uh, terrible. What's the matter, Joe? Uh, nothing. I'm better. It's all right. I've got something to show you, Joe. Been meaning to. It's, uh, it's a sun motor. A thing for making use of solar energy. Runs my electric generator. What? Why the devil do you want to do that? Haven't you got the current wired in from the city? Well, of course. But I'm trying to see how independent I can be from the city. Oh, uh, little Jeffersonian democracy. Oh, uh, you're turning back the clock, Bill. You're going against progress. Am I? Well, don't worry about it, Joe. No, uh, you're a crackpot, Bill. I guess you always will be. But remember what I said. You stay away from my manager. I, I won't stand it. I'm the boss on my estate. <laughs> Stoyce forgot all about his blood pressure and the living God, and he felt suddenly happy. It occurred to him, in spite of everything, Bill Proctor liked him. In a glow of good feeling, he went home to his castle and straight to Virginia's boudoir. Oh, Uncle Joe. Uncle Joe. Hello, baby. Glad to see me. My baby. Oh, Uncle Joe. Oh, Bill. What are you doing here? I was just a bit worried by the coffee you ordered lunch. That's why I came up here to make sure of catching it the moment you came in. The prevention, you know, is better than cure. I'm not going to let you get influenza if I can help. No, that is. Well, I feel fine. Nothing wrong with me at all. That cough wasn't anything. Only my old, you know, chronic bronchitis. Yes, yes, but I'd like to listen and open your shirt. Huh? He's right, Uncle Joe. You wouldn't want anything to happen. Well, all right. That's fine. I'll breathe in deeply. Breathe. <laughs> Night fell on Stoyt Castle. The long halls were shrouded with shadow. In his room, Pete Boone was dreaming of Virginia, trying to equate his vague yearning for political and religious justice with the warm glow he felt when he considered Miss Monstable, uh, even objectively. While the young lady's room, the object of his adoration, was busy redecorating her toenails. Oh, darn. Polish is coming off my toe. Darn it. Darn it. Oh, Polish stinks. Uncle Joe? Uncle Joe? Good evening, Amy. Hey, what are you doing here? I thought we might have a little talk. After all, we were interrupted this afternoon. I think you're crazy. Uncle Joe will kill you if he finds you. Why don't you pull that gun out no, of his no, pocket? No, 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 darling, he won't, he won't. You should take the word of a medical man, ain't he? Uncle Joe will sleep for the last trump. I've just seen to that. <laughs> I think you're awful. Well, don't let me interrupt your labors. Just see with your paint job. Mm -hmm. Woman's work is never done. 
James, I don't like the way you talk. The polish, darling, is running. Oh, darling. I don't like your getting fresh with me. You know, Uncle, you almost caught you this afternoon. With my trusty hypodermic, my dear, I disarm all suspicion. But you're not even romantic or anything. You just laugh at me and you make dirty cracks. Well, this isn't even nice. <laughs> you know, I admire the way you flooded young Pete this evening. Uncle Joe was hoping jealous of Oh, darling, poor Pete. Doesn't wait till I get time for you. No, that's my Oh, you. It takes a professor of pharmacology to put an old buzzard into a coma and a few drops of this and that. I won't have you calling Uncle Joe a buzzard. No. Shall we say then a senile, foul-smelling goat? Why, you dirty. Uncle Joe's a better man than you'll ever be. I think he's wonderful. Yes. You think he's wonderful? But all the same, in about five minutes, you'll be kissing me. What? Why, you filthy, dirty Oh, God, darling, you're spoiling the polish on your toes. Just wait till I'm finished. I don't believe I was. You know, the perfume of you is strong enough to cut right through the stink of the polish. Can you get away from me. You're no good. Virginia, I believe you're going to kiss me now. Oh, you rotten. Uh, that's much better. And in the master bedroom, under a 25-foot mural of a crucifixion of St. Peter by El Greco, Lord of Stoic Castle slept with a revolver under his pillow and with fear sitting at his bedside. Crawling, damp, fear. In his dream, the shroud flapped, and he heard the squeak of the screws. He clamped down the heavy lid of his coffin. You are listening to After Many a Summer Dies the Swan by Aldous Huxley. And here again, Miss. Eva Legallion. As a playwright, he has been less successful, though I've always liked his play, The World of Light. Some critics have resented his increasing concern with the field of mysticism, which has naturally caused a change in the manner as well as the contents of his work. Sidney Case says of him, for instance, from being anxiously intellectual, he became too confusedly anti-intellectual. Well, people who think along these lines bemoan the fact that he has become less and less an entertaining novelist and more and more a man absorbed in the search for truth. I see no reason to condemn a man for that. Might be a good thing for the state of the world in general if more of us engaged in this arduous occupation. One of the results of this concern of his is his book, The Perennial Philosophy, which has opened doors to many thousands of people, including myself, and which seems to me a tremendously valuable contribution to living. But we'd better get on with our story, which presents Mr. Huxley in what one might perhaps call his middle period. So we'll resume with Act Two of After Many a Summer Dies the Swan in just a moment. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Oh, Act Two of the new theater's transcribed production of After Many a Summer Dies the Swan.
Muddling about with the Holberg papers was completely fascinating. The fifth Earl of Garnister, about 1789, writes as follows. If men and women did woo as noisily as do cats, what London I could ever hope to sleep a night? There speaks the 18th century. But the 20th century, life in Stoyd Castle came rapidly to a rolling boil. The baby, uh, uh, Miss Mortable, had that inward dreamy look of young ladies who discovered that love does not necessarily go the largest checkbook. While Uncle Joe became chronically ill-tempered due to jealousy of a, <laughs> oddly enough, young Pete. On the longevity front, Dr. Obispo swore constantly that soon we should all be living as long as crocodiles. For those of us doomed to shuffle off the mortal coil, there is always the Beverly Panther, Joe Stoit Fidget. And the total profit, Mr. Stoit, comes to over 500000 for the three-month period. Not bad for a boneyard, eh, Mr. Stoit? Don't talk that way. You close that door. That caterwauling organ wounds my digestion. Sure, Mr. Stoit, sure. Now, what'd you get me over here for? I don't like this place. I don't like cemeteries. Mr. Stoit, look, that's a idea I had. You know that ridge up there by the tiny Taj Mahal? Yeah. Well, I figure we can dig right under it and make it a catacombs. A what? A class A catacombs, like in Rome. Now, how about a chapel of the martyrs with a nice plastic group of girls being eaten up by lions? People would get a big kick out of that. Sex appeal and death. What a promotion. Listen, Charlie, I don't like the idea. And there's another thing. Some young fool out there had the nerve to show me a place he said he'd save for me. Firing. Sure, Mr. Stoyd, sure. Uh, you can get the estimates and plans for your cave, but no martyr. Not even one day, Mr. Stoyd, just one. No martyr. That's final. Uh, call my car. I want to get out of here. Now, you tell me about Pete Boone. He's a confused young man, if that's what you mean, Joe. I want to know what should I do about it. Hmm? Why? Ginny keeps patting him like a big dog. If the kid would only make a pass at her, I could throw him out. But you can't just hire a, a, a big dog. <laughs> you still like your Virginia, eh? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. She makes you feel good. Like when you get tanked up on scotch or when you give a toy to a kid. She's kind of, uh, well, kind of like a daughter. Mm. But more than a daughter, eh, Joe? Better than a daughter. A combination, is that it? <laughs> sort of. Uh, but she's changed. She isn't, well, she isn't the same. Besides, I haven't been feeling good. That blasted cemetery always gets me down. Ah, nobody left, eh, Joe? No friends, no religion, no philosophy, and only Virginia. Well, yeah, there's no sense to anything. That's what's wrong. Mm, it's an idiot world, Joe. We all live in an idiot universe. Of course, we, we can't all afford to build it out of concrete and steel the way you did. You mean the castle? What's wrong with the castle? Well, nothing, if you can stand idiocy. I... Never mind. I tell... Oh, never mind the whole thing. Never get a straight answer out of you lousy professors anyway. Forget it. Never should have talked to you in the first place. No. No, Joe, you shouldn't. And you lay off those harvest workers. You've been stirring them up. This is my place, Phil. My place. Working on the Hoburg papers kept me busy during the day. Most of it was dull, merely accounts, legal documents, and business letters. Not at all my cup of tea. But at 12 o'clock, I found the parchment-bound notebook belonging to the 5th Earl of Gunster. The first entry was July 1780. And as I read, I could hear in my mind's ear 
the strong voice of the fifth earl, author of this remarkable journal. July, 1780. One of the church livings in my gifts being vacant, my sister sent to me today a young divine whom she commends for his virtue. But I will not have him. Give me the parson that drinks deep, rides to hounds and games the night away. Such a parson tests the faith of his flock. And it is thus we come to salvation. <laughs> Wicked old fellow, now let's see. Now. March, 1784. Open the old tombs beneath the house today. A kind of ropey slime depends from the roof and coats the walls. It is a condensation of decay. No, tombs beneath Dolly's house. That'll cause quite a ripple in England. Let's see now. 1789, 94, 95. I have tried King David's remedy against old age and found it wanting. Warmth cannot be imparted, but only evoked. I'm an old man now, weak and shrunken, without desires. Oh, the fifth Earl suffers from Uncle Joe's complaint. Well, well, well. <laughs> July 1796. There are carp in the fish ponds at Gunnister with leaden discs which were attached to their tails in the days of Charles I, 300 years ago. Hi, George, so he's onto the carp, too. I marvel at the strength and unimpaired agility of these great fishes. The secret of eternal life is not to be found in old books or even in heaven. It is to be found in the mud and only awaits... The skillful angler. The secret of life in the mud. <laughs> well, won't well, that hand of his poet Joe his best ideas on longevity anticipated in the 18th century and by the fifth Earl of God himself. You mean to say some old fossilized Earl was onto the carp theory? <laughs> Can you tell that? Well, you're not annoyed. Oh, why the devil should I be? Well, your theory, I, I mean, it's been anticipated. Uh, let's hear more about your fifth Earl. You say he lived till 90? More than 90. 96 or 7. He died in the middle of a scandal of war. Oh, not really. Well, what sort of a scandal? Well, uh, <laughs> uh, um, it seems he had a tendency towards uh, homicidal pleasure. <laughs> killed somebody? Not actually killed, uh, just damaged. Yeah. You know, the old buzzard line... The secret of life is to be found in the mud. That's almost a definition of science. Well, I was up to 1796. The old chap was feeling pretty seedy. Pharmaceutical tragedy. Well, I'll bet he could have been fixed up with a week of injections. Hey, get to the diary and let's hear the old gold speak for himself. Yeah, well, certainly. January 1797. Why should a man die at three score years and ten when a fish can retain its youth for two and three centuries. Man cooks his food before eating it and generally throws away precisely those organs of the fish in which it is most reasonable to assume that the substance preventive of decay is contained. Good Lord. Don't tell me the old buzzard is going to eat raw fish cut. That's exactly what he is doing now, listen. My first three attempts provoked an uncontrollable wretching at the fourth, I was finally able to retain a few spoonfuls of the nauseating mincemeat. Oh, talk about courage. I'd rather go through an air raid than that. February. 
1797. It is now a month since I began to test the truth of my hypothesis. And I am now ingesting each day not less than six ounces of raw, minced viscera of freshly opened carbon. Oh, good Lord. A fish is more parasite than any other animal. It makes my blood run cold. But you needn't worry. The diary goes on, you know. March. Improved in strength. April. Horseback riding again. I said, oh, this is more than a joke. Raw fish cut, prevention of senile poisoning and rejuvenation. Rejuvenation. In September, he's been out fox hunting. After which, there's no entry until 1799. No entry until 1799. When this case is getting really interesting, he goes and leaves us in the dark. Oh, not entirely in the dark. There's an entry a little further on. The age of 81, Mr. Searle, is the proud father of a bouncing baby boy. <laughs> At 81? <laughs> what do you think of that? And here in 1820, he seems to be in the prime of life. 1826, he's taken on a new uh, housekeeper named Kate. In 1831, he has repairs made on the dungeons of Yonister House. And how about his health? Oh, he seems to take it for granted. Wait, wait, now listen to this. March, 1834. I am the criminal negligence of Kate. Priscilla, my young servant girl, has been allowed to escape from a subterranean place of confinement. Unfortunately, she bears upon her person the evidence that for some weeks she has been a subject of my investigations. She holds in her hand my reputation... And perhaps even my liberty and life. Well, there it is. That's the scandal. And the old devil. <laughs> the girl must have told us story. <laughs> well, well, what's next? I you really can't make it out. It is devilish odd. My funeral will be conducted with all the pomp befitting my rank and virtues. My only regret is that I shall be unable to leave my subterranean retreat to see the pageantry of woe. I go now to my own private hell, deep beneath the walls of Gonister House. And that's all. There's nothing else. Just two more blank pages and the end of the book. And nobody knows how long the old buzzard lived on. Not outside the family. Was an old woman living in Gonister House now, Lady Jane Herbert, the last of the line before the people still realize what this means. Oh, the fifth Earl could still be... Yes, it could be. Bless me. I suppose you really could. But if you've got to find out, I'm taking the next boat to England. <laughs> Things are crazy. You're absolutely crazy. Why are we going to England? Uh, it's a secret, Angel. I haven't even told Uncle Joe yet, but you take it from me. We'll go. Well, I wish you'd go somewhere. And I don't mean England. Ah, uh, I should have I mean it. I don't like the way you act. I feel like I'm double-crossing Uncle Joe all the time. Darling, you are. Besides, I haven't been able to say my prayers. I don't like you, Sid. I don't like you at all. <laughs> Still, there isn't much you can do about it, is there? You make up your mind that you hate me, don't you? That you won't speak to me again, won't even look at me. Go away. But you can't keep that promise, can you? No. You don't mean that at all. Father, Portage. Uh, yes, Mr. Stoyce. Uh, come on up to the roof with me. I want to talk to you. Why, uh, yes, of course. Get in the elevator. Oh, thank you. 
not in time today. Oh, I'm sorry. That was that blasted cemetery. Always gets me down. Going up to see Virginia now. She always makes me feel better. Wouldn't know what to do without. She's mine. She loves her old Uncle Joe. You can bet your bottom dollar on that. Here we are. Oh, after you, Mr. Sergeant. Cut it off, baby. Excuse me again, I'll hate you. Sure, darling. Sure, go ahead. Hate me. Uh, baby. Oh, this for? Uncle Joe. You snake. Uh, you dirty, slimy, filthy snake. I'll kill you. No, I'll, I'll kill you. No, Uncle Joe, no. Look out for that gun. I'll no. kill you. I'll kill you. Get away. I'll... I'll... Well, how's this shot, Uncle Joe? <laughs> let go of my arm, Jenny. I'll get him this time. No, no, don't kill him, Uncle Joe. Let go of him, Jenny. Let go. Let him shoot if he dares. Evie. What do you mean? I dare. I'll kill you, Obisal. No, no, you won't, Uncle Joe. You won't. Because then you'll die, too. What? What's that? You kill me, it won't be long before they've got you stretched out under the black marble mausoleum at your Beverly Pantheon. What the devil do you mean? That I've just found a new way to keep you alive. But without me, you'll be a dead man in a month. No! No, you don't mean that! I didn't solve it! I didn't lose it! It'll be small! You had a stroke, Joe. You had a stroke. But I've got good news for you. There's a chance that we have found the secret of life in the mud. You found it? What is it, Obispo? What is it? I've got to have it now. Drop the gun, Uncle Joe. What? Oh, the gun. What is it, Obispo? I'm going to live. I'm not going to die. We shall see, Joe. You've got to keep me alive, Obispo. You've got to. Oh? After you tried to kill me? No, I was not. I didn't mean to. You can't let me die when you know how to stop it. You can't. If you don't mind all, I'm going to sit down. You've got to keep me living. You've got to. You can have anything you want. I can pay for anything. Anything? <laughs> well, Uncle Joe, now you're talking turkey. <laughs> Sir, now you are talking turkey. <laughs> The strike private airplane whisked party to New York, then Gander, Newfoundland, Shannon Island, and finally, the modern chariot of the sun set down rather roughly at Croydon Airport, London. Consul gas supplied a tremendous black limousine, and off it drove through the diluted London sunshine down into the country towards Donister House. Mr. Stroyte sprawled under a fur rug in the back seat of the car. He was on sedation by the doctor's order, so he slept fitfully as the car roared on. Dr. Obispo was at the wheel, while Virginia sat aloof on the front seat. I dreamt I dwelt in marble oh, halls. Ma- uh, no fear work, Uncle Joe, honey. It's out like a light. And will you love me in December as you do I in May? <laughs> Why not? It's open season on doctors, darling. But don't worry, don't worry. We understand each other, Uncle Joe and I. We even understand about you. <laughs> I dreamed I killed a golden goose that laid a golden egg. She objects to my singing. Goodness knows why. I have such a charming voice, particularly when adapted to a small auditorium like this car. <laughs> uh, what is it? Are we here? Yes, indeed, we are here, Uncle Joe. Gunner's the house. I like it, Uncle Joe. It's scary. Oh, it's all right, baby. It's all right. Yeah, look out for the creepers on the path. Not much of a garden, eh? It's all grown over. <gasps> What's 
someone behind that bush. Come on out, youngster. Come out. Look what I've got. I've got a gas mask. That's what I've got. Oh, that's nice. Gas mask all filled with flowers, huh? What's your name? Me. I'm nine. Nine? Granny says I'm undernourished. Uh, does your granny live here, Minnie? In the kitchen. She's dead. Oh. Do you like candies? Huh? Uh, what the devil they call candies in England? Uh, uh, would you like some sweets? Just let us in and you can have them more. Well, I... I don't know. Oh, nice chocolatey sweets. Whole box of them. Well, all right. Come on. I don't get this, Obispo. I don't understand why we're here. Why can't you tell me? Now, don't get worried, Obispo. Obispo, can you prove absolutely there's no such place as hell? Can you prove the wrong side of the moon is not inhabited by green elephants? No, seriously. Oh, don't bother me with the nonsense. But do you think hell is possible? Everything is possible. Uh, Millie. Yes, sir? Where's the cellar door, dear? No. What do you mean, no? Just show us the door to the cellar. I won't, I'm afraid. There's ghosts down there. You don't have to go there. Just show us. If you don't, you shan't have any more candies. They're sweet. Come on, give them back. No. Yes, I'm going to eat them all up myself. Mmm. Oh, they're good. good. Oh, poor little Millie. Isn't going to have any more sweet chocolates? Mmm, they're so good. I want my sweet. Not till you show us the door to the salad, dear. Right, it's an unborn ape that's had time to grow up. Look, 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 look here. Look at the face. His matted hair, deep eyes, no eyebrows. Look at the fire, dirty wrinkles, and that shelf of bone jutting out over his eyes. Just look at him. Look at him crack. Look at him, Joe. The feet lay for the. What is it? What is it? It's a man. That's what it is. Look at the ribbon across his chest. That's the order of St. George. You're looking at the noble lord, the fifth earl of Gonesford. <laughs> no. No. Yes, yes, the fifth earl of Gonesford. 201 years old, last January. But, but what happened to him? Just time, time, time. Yes, he never died, but it's time. Time for a man, the unborn ape, to grow up to be. Oh, take me away, I'm so <laughs> But it's the 
joke I ever heard. It's absolutely the best. <laughs> you don't have to experiment anymore. No, uh, what do you mean? You can start taking the stuff at once. Oh, no. Yes. Yes, if you're willing to become like that, you can live forever, sir. What do you say? What do you say? I, uh, how long do you figure it would take before a person cuts like that? I mean, it wouldn't happen all at once. There'd be a time while a person knew. Well, you know, while he wouldn't change anything. No, 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 no. You want you want to go. You don't want you. Once you get over the first shock, I mean, it's better than... Dying, isn't it? Looks like he has a pretty good time. Uh, I mean, in his own way, of course. Don't you do so, Obispo? Don't you do so, Obispo? <laughs> <laughs> You have heard After Many a Summer Dies the Swan by Aldous Huxley. The dramatization was by Ernest Kinoy. And here again, Miss Eva Legallion. Oh, there's something decidedly ghastly about that ending. Might almost have been written by Edgar Allan Poe. Makes me glad it's still daylight here. <laughs> now about next week. We're going to present a very different kind of story in a decidedly popular vein. One for which we have had many requests. It's a new dramatization of Daphne du Maurier's great yarn, Rebecca. So until next Sunday and the new theater production of Rebecca, this is Eva Legallian saying good night. And don't forget, join us at the theater. Tonight's production of After Many a Summer Dies the Swan was transcribed in Hollywood. Heard in the cast were Ramsey Hill as Jeremy, Ted Van Elk as Foster, Francis X. Bushman as Joe Stoyt, Lynn Whitney as Virginia, Tony Barrett as Dr. Obispo, William Lally as Pete, Ralph Montgomery as Charlie, Donald Morrison as the fifth Earl of Gunster, and Marlene Ames as the girl. After Many a Summer Dies the Swan was directed by... Andrew C. Love. Your announcer, Fred Collins. It's the Silver Jubilee on NBC. NBC means the best in music. Here's a listening reminder. Be sure to hear tonight's broadcast of the NBC Symphony Orchestra Summer Concert Series. Featured this evening with the NBC Symphony Orchestra will be Robert Merrill with Milton Catums as guest conductor. Mr. Merrill will be heard in the spiritual Deep River, On the Road to Mandalay, and the Toyodor song from Carmen. Conductor Catums will lead the NBC Symphony Orchestra in the very colorful Collaborignon Overture. Other selections on the program will include Rosencavalier Waltzes, Batuque by Fernandez, Debussy's Claire de Lune, and the Suite in F-sharp minor by Dagnani. And then tomorrow, Monday, be sure to hear the Boston Pops Orchestra under the direction of Arthur Fiedler. The Boston Pops Orchestra 
will feature among its selections Fane's Alice in Wonderland music in a suite and the overture to Wagner's Rienzi. The Boston Pops Orchestra will also include in its performance the famous guard mount from Bizet's well-known work, Carmen. So, tonight, hear Robert Merrill and Milton Catons as guest artists on the NBC Symphony Orchestra Summer Concert Series. Then tomorrow, hear the Boston Pops Orchestra under the direction of Arthur Fiedler. Yes, for the very best in music, keep tuned to NBC. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. For the best of old-time radio, keep it right here at Yesterday USA, Superstation Radio. Why USA is a non-profit, listener-supported radio station that survives solely on the support of its members. To become a member, contact Bill at area code 972-889-YUSA or visit the website www.yesterdayusa.com. And now again, here is the old guy, Dick Olday. That was NBC University Theater. And now since uh, we had the elder statesman with us, uh, and he happens to be a fan of Jack Armstrong, we thought we'd talk a little bit about that. Well, Frank, uh, as everybody knows, is the expert on Sherlock Holmes. He went to school with Conan Doyle as an upperclassman of Conan Doyle. But Frank is also like Jack Armstrong, All-American Boy. Now, I'm going to toss this one at you, Frank. One thing I'm going to ask you, have you heard the uh, same time, same station uh, program about Jack Armstrong, All-American Boy? Have I heard it? Yes. I live by it. No. I still the, eat Wheaties every day. No, no, did you hear that broadcast from the 70s? Same time, same I station? I sure did. Okay. Because if you didn't, I was going to give you one. Well, go ahead. I respect my elders. <laughs> well, then I want to ask you a question. Do you remember the, the uh, Jack Armstrong theme song? Wave the flag for Hudson High, boys. Go ahead. Keep it up. I mean, uh, you get to pay me. I'm a professional here. <laughs> okay. Wave or fight for Hudson High, boys. Show them how we stand. Ever shall our team be champions known throughout the land. Boola, 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 boola. Now, that boola, boola had to be taken out because, if I'm not mistaken, it was Yale University. And they notified Jack, look, buddy, out with that or we sue. So poor Jack had to lose out on it. You know, a lot of these uh, radio shows had a lot of premiums. And with Jack Armstrong, it was a Wheaties box top, and you sent a nickel, a dime. And if it was really expensive, you had to send a quarter. Now, do you know what some of these premiums are worth today? You probably would have them. I'd hate to guess. I really would. Oh, let's see. Uh, A cap. A Jack Armstrong cap is worth $15. A Christmas spoon from 1933 is worth... $20, $20, and there were miniature comic books, uh, and they're worth about 50 bucks. Uh, Wiz Comics Miniature from 1948 is worth $50. Uh, Flash Comics Miniature, 1948, 75 bucks. A first aid kit from 1939 is worth about $15. There was a football game. That's worth about thirty dollars. Well, Frank, I got a couple here in mind. I'm going to ask you about. You haven't come across them yet, but go ahead. Uh, oh, go ahead, Frank. Okay. You remember um, Searcher Professor Loring, and when they were in Mindanao, 
and the uh, the sergeants there of the uh, Spanish uh, or the Philippine, I should say, constantly, they gave Jack a, a, a pedometer, yeah. and that was often. Now, I do remember getting one as a kid, but it was called a hypometer. Now, I know they both were the same, I mean, but they they did work because we were clicking down, walking back and forth to school, clicking that thing all day long. Uh, as a matter of fact, I had a Lone Ranger pedometer. I didn't know he had yes, one. Yes, yes, I had one. I remember wearing it to school. Well, a lot of that stuff in the 30s, uh, the names have changed. Like, there was an episode of The Shadow where he talked about flying torpedoes. That's missiles today. I see the end. Sounds familiar to me. Well, I... God, if you want to okay, the other one, well, before you go any further, the other item was a bomb site. This was during the beginning of World War II. And it was a little, oh, I'd say maybe two inches square, and a little tiny bombs in there, and you'd look you'd look into the periscope, and um, a little knob you'd twist, and then the bomb would fall out, and a little X mark there, you could hit your target. Do you remember that? That's way before my time. Well, I, you know, mm-hmm. hey, come on. We started out on the radio club in 75 as young men. And here we Wait a minute, you were old in 75. We were old fogies. <laughs> you never were a young man. <laughs> <laughs> you got a point there, Vic. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, be- before we get to our, our Sergeant Preston for day, I have to apologize to our audience. I, you know, that, that caterwauling that you heard earlier, they thought was singing. Oh, my God. I, I, I really... I, Never heard I, you sing, Dick. I, I hope our audience is still with us after that. Come on, Dick. You but anyway, that. now it's, it's time for Sergeant Preston. And today's episode of Sergeant Preston originally aired on April 6th, 1944. The Challenge of the Yukon. <laughs> I'm king! I'm the Wonder Dog King, swiftest and strongest of Eskimo lead dogs, blazes the trail through storm and snow for Sergeant Preston as he meets the challenge of the Yukon. Sergeant Preston was typical of the small band of Northwest Mounted Police who preserved law and order in the new Northwest country, where the greed for wealth and power led to frequent violence and bloodshed. But in spite of the odds against them, Sergeant Preston and his Wonder Dog King met that challenge. And justice ruled triumphant. Edward Carson had been married to Stella Burns a year. It was a year that proved the skeptics wrong who'd called it an impossible match, saying Eddie would never settle down. It had been a year of thinking of someone else's happiness before his own. It had meant sacrifices, taking a job in her father's bank because Stella wanted him to. Young Carson thought of these things as he stood before his father-in-law's desk in a prominent city bank in the United States in 1875. Eddie, you know what it would mean to Stella's mother if I were to be exposed in a scandal. The shock would kill her. And you know what Stella thinks about mother. Yeah, I, I know. But you should have thought that before. I should have, I guess. But the damage is done. The bank examiners will be here in a week. You've got to help me, Eddie. You could go away. Stella would understand. I'd tell her why you left. All my life, I'd been a prominent citizen. She'd she'd never be able to hold her head up if the story should get out. It'd be just as bad for her if her husband were branded a thief. Not if she knew the truth. A week later, when the story broke and Edward Carson was branded a thief, Frank Burns appeared to be stunned. 
In his large home, he spoke soothingly to his daughter, Stella. There now, Stella. It's no use crying. He was doing so well. But he always had a wild streak in him. I told you that when you married him. It's uh, best to just forget about him. You make your home with Mother and me and uh, forget about Eddie Carson. It was months later. And in the dingy saloon on the waterfront, Eddie Carson, now known as John Smith, sat reading a newspaper. Hey, Slim. Come over here and see what Smith's reading. <laughs> he, he's reading the society page of the newspaper. Says here, says, Mrs. Stella Carson died last night in the St. Mary's Hospital. Her baby daughter... Shut up, you drunken sailor. <laughs> What's the matter, Smitty? Shame to be in court reading the society page, huh? Oh, I read it all the time when I drink me spot of tea. Shut up. <laughs> Why, you... Maybe that'll teach you to mind your own business. Twenty years passed, and in Frank Burns' house, the old man sent for his granddaughter. It's about, about your father. You know the story of what happened. I know. Well, I'm going to tell you the truth about it. Still, I, he never took that money. What? I took it. I'd made a lot of bad investments. Yes, but, but they told me he left a note. He took the blame to cover up for me. Did my mother know that? Did you tell her before... before she died? No. No, I didn't tell her. You mean she... She died believing my father was a thief when, when all the time he'd been shielding you. Well, I... I meant to tell her, but... Uh, but you didn't. Stella, if ever a man paid for what he did, I have. Paid? Well, you've had security and comfort all this time, but... But what about my father? Security! <laughs> I... <laughs> I... I haven't had a penny I could call my own these, these last 20 years. Well, what have we been living on? I We've thought... been living on the money your father sent. Where did he send it from? All over. He sent money from the Argentine, Singapore, Madagascar, the East Indies, Amsterdam. But where was he when you last heard from him? How long ago was it? About two months ago. Well, where was he then? <laughs> Grandfather, please, where was he then? Open the first door, the chest over there. That's where I put the envelope. You see it? Where's your postmark? Postmark? Dorothy. Yukon Territory. Several months had passed. Stella Carson's determination to find her father had led her to the Yukon. In Dawson, she found no trace of Edward Carson and had moved on further inland to Clover City, where she talked to Sergeant Preston. Eddie Carson, who still was known simply as John Smith, owned the Black Ace Saloon. And he sat in the back room with a bottle of whiskey at his elbow as the Mountie talked to him. 
20 years had made many changes in the appearance of a man who'd lived in different climates in countries all over the globe. Slowly, he reached for the whiskey to refill his glass. Uh, drink, Sergeant? Oh, no, thanks, John. What about all this? I've been watching you ever since that girl came to town. I've never seen you show an interest in any individual before, man or woman. This cousin is young. About 20, I imagine. Young enough, John, to be your daughter. All right. You seem to have put everything together. Maybe you've guessed the truth. I knew the truth, John, when you signed the mine over to her. You aren't usually so... So generous? <laughs> Did you tell her? Of course not. Your secret is your own. So far as she knows, you were just making a gesture to a young girl who's apparently alone in the world. She probably chalked it up to a drunken whim of yours. I don't think she even knows the value of the mine. Well, it's rich enough to take care of her all her life. But the most important thing to her is to find her father. That's no use, Sergeant. You don't understand. You said she probably thought my turning the mine over to her was a... a drunken gesture. You're right. If she thinks of me at all... she thinks of me as a... broken-down old fool. No. No, John, that isn't true. Sure it's true. Don't you think I've known it? She feels sorry for me. Twenty years is a long time. I've done too many things. I've... That's no use. It can't go back. Well, I wish you'd think it over. I have thought it over. I've been a lucky man, Sergeant. I've lived long enough to see my daughter more than I've ever hoped for. The word that Stella Carson now owned the Moonbeam Mine got around quickly in Clover City. In the front of the saloon, two men sat at a table. Al Lawson's forehead was creased with a deep frown. Listen, Sam, I don't know what this is all about. I don't have time to tell you. We've had our eyes on the moonbeam for a long time. Yeah, sure, but it don't... No buts, Sam. My plan works out. We'll have it. Shut up. Here she comes. Mr. Ellison? Oh, yes. I, uh... This is Mr. Lawson, ma'am. Here, let me help you. Thank you. I, uh, I understand you've come up here to the Yukon to look for your father, Edward Carson. Yes, that's true. Well, I think me and Al can help you out. You can? You see, we met a man named Carson about two months ago in Barlow Rapids. Now, it's kind of a hard sort of place to get to, but uh, Al and me could get you up there. Oh, I, I can hardly believe it. Yeah, I guess it is good news. <laughs> You've been looking for him for quite a while. How soon can we start? Just as soon as you're ready. I can be ready in 20 minutes. Fine. Now, you meet Al and me at the north end of town. Ought to be dark by then, but we know the trail. All right, I'll, I'll see you then. Later, Stella Carson came down the stairs of the Black Ace. Hello there, Mr. Smith. Well, you're looking very happy about something, Miss Carson. Oh, I am happy. I, I've just been talking to two men who, who are going to take me to my father. What? They said they saw him at... Um, at a place called Barlow Rapids. I'm going to meet them now at the north end of town. Oh, I, I see. 
they must have been the fellows who stopped in here a few minutes ago. They did? Yes. They said you should meet them at the Mounties' cabin instead. Yeah, that's it. Oh, I see. Well, wish me luck, Mr. Smith. I do, Stella. I wish you luck always. With all my heart. At Sergeant Preston's cabin, the Mountie was amazed that Stella Carson told him her reason for being there. King, standing close to his master, listened to the conversation. And you say Smith told you to come here? Instead of meeting the two men as you'd arranged. Yes, he said they told him to give me that message. Hmm, I see. Well, where are you going, Sergeant? To the north end of town. Come on, King. Wait. Wait for me. Darkness had settled over Clover City. And at the north end of town, two men dragged a limp figure toward the river's edge. How do you suppose he knew what we were up to? I don't know. He made a mistake when he told us to clear out of town. Well, he's unconscious now. Never knew what hit him when you stopped with the butt of your gun. Come on. That group of trees will keep anybody from seeing us. I want to get him under the ice. Meanwhile, Sergeant Preston, Stella Carson, and the great dog King had approached the point the two men had designated as a meeting place. Darkness made it impossible to see the trail. King caught the scent. And slowly, with a suppressed excitement, he padded about in the snow to find in which direction the trail led. What is it, boy? Yes, I know you're here, fella. But King hadn't caught the Mountie's hand in his teeth simply to make his presence known. Persistently, he pulled his arm. What's he making all that noise for, Sergeant? I, I don't know. He... Hey there, King. He's put his weight against my legs. He's be pushing me. That's it. He wants us to head toward the river. As the two men reached the river's edge, Al Lawson held a match to a lantern he carried. The flame burned low, but threw enough light for them to test the ice. Put the lantern down on the bank, Al. Yeah. I want to get this over with and be out of here before any... What the... A dog! Ah, don't pay any attention to him. You head back to town. Yeah, that Carson girl's going to be wondering why we ain't up on the trail. She knows why you're not on the trail. Put up your hands, both of you. Damn, it's a mountain. Sergeant, it's Mr. Smith. What is this? Are these the two men you were supposed to meet, Miss Carson? Why, yes, but I don't understand all this. All the pieces fit together. These men probably knew you owned the Moonbeam Mine. They were planning to force you to sign it over to them. It was all his idea. He said we could get it to sign it over and then do away with it. Why, you dirty double-crosser. how? Why did they beat Mr. Smith? I don't know. You told me you mentioned to him about your intended trip. Yes. He knew your father couldn't possibly be in Barlow Rabbits. You see, he's your father. What? Right. He's coming around now. You two are under arrest for attempted murder and conspiracy to defraud. Sergeant. Sergeant, is she all right? Yes. I'm all right. Oh. Stella. It's all right, Dad. It's all right. Yes, King, old boy. Everything is all right. Thanks to you... The case is closed. These copyrighted dramas originate in the studios of WXYZ Detroit. And all characters, names, places, and incidents used are fictitious. They're sent to you each week at the same time. This is Jack McCarthy speaking. This is the Michigan Radio Network. Okay, you lucky people, the clock says you're in for a treat because we've got some time left. 
And now, here is a five-minute mystery. Another five-minute mystery. There you are, Mr. Campbell. I've been waiting for you very anxiously since your call. I hurried down here as fast as I could. Mr. Campbell, if your evidence can give me a clue to the identity of Mr. Martin's killer, we'll break this case wide open. Lieutenant, it's not an easy thing for me to bear. First, my partner was killed, and now with this photograph I'm putting on your desk, I condemn as the murderer... His wife? Good heaven! Why didn't you show me this sooner? I thought you might suspect her and solve the case and... I would have been able to remain silent. Look at this picture. It's the perfect evidence. His body on the floor in front of the couch and she leaning over him with a gun still in her hand. Why, this will send her the chair. I know. It wasn't easy for me to give it to you. How on earth did you ever get it? Well, I had an appointment with my partner at a little after 11 p.m. at his house. Mm -hmm. When I came up the walk, I was surprised to see that the house was dark. You see, you must pass the large bay window in the living room when coming up the walk. The room was very dark, but by the faint light from some burning coals in the fireplace, I could see Mr. Martin's body lying in front of the large couch. You could? Yes. I saw my partner's wife come into the room. She had a gun in her hand. Well, how did you get the picture? Well, I've always been a camera enthusiast. I happened to have a small box camera with me, and without her noticing me, I took a picture of the room. It's really a remarkable photograph. I've kept it hidden for several days, but when you found no trace of the murderer, I decided that you would have to have it. I'm glad you did, Mr. Campbell. It isn't exactly safe to withhold evidence, but now we have it, and it looks like the Martin case is closed. Yes? Mr. Campbell, there's a gentleman from the police department to see you. Oh, send him in. Always glad to help the police. Well, hello, Lieutenant. It's good to see you. Sorry to bother you, Mr. Campbell. It's about the Martin case. Oh, but I thought the case was closed. You've arrested Mrs. Martin, haven't you? Yes, but there are some points about the case that still puzzle me. Really? But you have the evidence in black and white. Yeah, but have I? Will a jury accept the picture? You've heard of process shots, haven't you? No, I don't believe I have. You're lying, Mr. Campbell. That picture you gave me was a phony. And I can prove that your whole expedition that night was a contrived fairy tale. How does the police lieutenant know that Campbell lied in his story? In just a moment, we'll know. But first... Mr. Campbell, you don't think I fell for that story about your being a camera hound and accidentally being on the spot for the picture of the year, do you? 
For if you were a photographer, as you claim, you'd know that the feeble light from a dying fire is hardly enough with which to take a picture in a darkened room. If you'd used a flash, she would have seen you, but that was impossible. Because she wasn't even in that room. But you were, Mr. Campbell. And you killed your partner and dummied up this fake picture to throw a blame on his wife. Snap judgment's supposed to be a dangerous thing, Campbell. You proved it. Challenge of the Yukon and join us for further adventures of Sergeant Preston. Now joining me again for our final word or two, here are the two Franks. Okay. That's the older Frank. You wondered what about my catawalling? No, I gotta tell you something. This was prearranged. Had you wondered why Frank Boncourt is sitting on one side and Frank Fork is on the other side? Stereo. We decided you needed to be tortured. <laughs> so that's the way we did it. I thought it was to balance out Oh, the and it is torture too. <laughs> Okay. I thought, uh, I thought Dick should sing something, you know. He talks about us. I never heard him sing. Did you ever hear him sing? Dick? Dick, yeah. Oh, and oh, I'd love to hear him sing. Yeah, Why don't I take my hearing aids off? Well, we'll let the audience decide that if you want to hear me sing. Send <laughs> your comments in. Slippery Dick. Let me know. Tricky Dick. Take my Dick. hearing aids off, and I'll be ready. Okay. All right. Thanks, Frank and Frank. <laughs> Uh, that concludes our time. broadcast. 